0: Psalm 15. You know, the Old Testament records the plight of God's people Israel. From Genesis to Esther, the historical books, we find the record of the steps of Israel's feet. While in the Psalms, we find the record of the beat Of Israel's heart the steps of their feet and now the beat of their heart all the Psalms that we'll study tonight were written by King David of the 150 Psalms 73 are ascribed to David he was the sweet psalmist of Israel 50 of the Psalms are anonymous we call them the orphan Psalms and the other 27 Psalms were written by various other authors Tonight we begin in Psalm 15, you remember one of David's deepest longings was to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to the city of Jerusalem, and at least five different psalms are tied to this event, Psalm 15, Psalm 24, Psalm 68, Psalm 87, and Psalm 105, are we okay? because everybody's confused at the moment. Are we we doing okay over here? Okay, good. All right. Once David became the king, one of his first projects was to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. You know, he loaded it on the back of a cart, and he made the trek up to the city of Jerusalem. Of course, this was not God's plan for transporting the Ark. God had given specific directions. Moses, remember, had made the Ark with four rings on the four corners of the ark so that it could be carried by poles. Well, on the ark, on the cart that the ark was sitting, the ark of the covenant itself began to slide as they made their way to Jerusalem. And a man by the name of Uzzah, he stuck out his hand to offer some support, to keep it, to steady it, to keep it from sliding. God struck him dead for touching that which was holy. And David realized that this was his fault, that he had been negligent, that he had been disobedient, and it frightened him. And at this point, he was afraid to move the ark another inch. And so rather than take it back to Kiros Jerim, he went ahead and he just put it into the house of a man who lived nearby, a man by the name of Obed-Edom. David had learned an important lesson, and that's this. God's work should always be done God's way. It's not just enough to do something good for God, but you need to do it God's way and in the manner that God prescribes. After this aborted mission, David left the ark there in Obed-Edom at his house for three months before he eventually transported it to Jerusalem the biblical way. And it was probably during those three months that David wrote Psalm 15. So here we find it. Lord... Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And you can imagine him asking this question after Uzzah had steadied the ark and God had struck him dead. Lord, who's fit for your presence? Who's holy enough, Lord, to live in your tabernacle, to know your presence? And here's the answer. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. In other words, God spends time with folks who do the right thing in their walk and in their works and in their words. Who does uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth. Is there integrity? Is there honesty? Verse 3 continues to describe the person who abides with God. He who does not backbite with his tongue. Notice God refuses to fellowship with a gossip. And remember, there are two ways to gossip. You can invent it and then tell it, or you can be the one who listens to it and entertains it. And understand, the listener is as guilty as the one who talks. Beware, those who gossip with you will one day gossip about you. Be careful. I've heard it put this way. The difference between a gossip and a concerned friend is like the difference between a butcher and a surgeon. Both cut meat, but for different reasons. Beware of the gossip. David continues to describe the righteous. He says, nor does evil, nor does he do evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In other words, he refuses to fuel a feud. He seeks peace with his neighbor. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt. And does not change. You know, he keeps his word even if it costs him materially or financially to do so. In other words, you promise to babysit for your friends. But then somebody hands you some tickets to the game instead. But instead of going to the game, you keep your promise. You know, God likes folks who hang out with people who put conviction before convenience. Who follow through on their word. Who do the right thing. Verse 5, he who does not put out his money at usury, usury was excessive interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. You could loan money in Israel, but there were rules, and you were to never loan it at exorbitant rates. David had a heart for God. He loved God's presence, but he had learned the hard way at Yuza's expense to walk uprightly. Well, Psalm 16 is said to be a mictum of David. It was one of six Psalms that carried this name, mictum. Psalms 56 through 60 are the other mictums mentioned in the book of Psalms. And of course, here's the question, what is a mictum? There are three possibilities. One is that the word could mean jewel or gold. In other words, these psalms were golden psalms. They were precious to David. Another possibility could be that the word means engraved, that these psalms were not to be forgotten, that the mictums were to be carved in stone, that they were to be written in indelible ink, that they were to be stored on your hard drive, so to speak. You know, You don't forget these psalms. And then the third possibility is that they were to be hidden or secret psalms. That it could be that they had secret or below-the-surface meaning to them. Some of these words, like mictum, are are very old words. We don't understand exactly what they mean, but here are three possibilities. And it's interesting, in this psalm, Psalm 16, it could be that all three are true. That this is a golden psalm, that it does need to be remembered, and it does have some special meaning. In fact, many people see in this psalm a prophetic picture of our Lord Jesus. Well, verse 1 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And can't we say the same thing? Our goodness is nothing apart from him. God's spirit is responsible for anything that's good in us. Verse 2. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Notice this, God takes delight, he takes joy in his saints. As we'll see, Psalm 16 is prophetic of Jesus and it may be him speaking here in verse 2. Jesus' delight is in you, it's in me, it's in his saints. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. You know, the sacrifice of Jesus cannot be applied to the man who's chasing false gods and other gods. Remember, this was what got the early Christians in trouble with Rome. You know, the Romans didn't care who else you worshipped. They they were uh, a polytheistic uh, people, and they allowed people to worship a multitude of gods just as long as you bowed to the Caesar. They saw no problem with other religions and other gods that you might want to worship. And and everyone could go along with that except the Christians. For the Christians served only one God. Their religion allowed them to accept just one, Jesus Christ. They could only pledge allegiance to Jesus. They had denied, they, they, they lived in denial of all the other gods. There was only one true God, and they worshiped and served him. You see, this is the hallmark of Christianity. You don't just take Jesus and add Him to a list of other gods. Jesus is the one God, the true God. You can't serve Christ and idols. As the old saying goes, either Jesus is Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. Verse 5 tells us, O Lord, You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places yes i have a good inheritance you know in ancient times an inheritance consisted primarily of land and so the land the lines of one's inheritance were the property lines and so david is saying that the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places david had inherited his father's fields there in bethlehem the sad thing though is that as long as Saul reigned as king of Israel. David was denied their use. He wasn't able to go near Bethlehem. But David had found a better inheritance. The Lord had become his portion. He says that the Lord is his lot. God's presence made wherever David was a pleasant place. He says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Notice this, at night he meditates on God. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now notice, the Holy One here cannot be David, for David's body did see corruption. It did die it went back to the dust it rotted in the grave here obviously is a prophecy of our messiah jesus christ and of his resurrection as a matter of fact peter on the day of pentecost he quotes this verse from the psalm and he applies it to jesus you can go back and look in acts chapter 2 and there peter quotes verses 8 through 11 of this psalm and then he then he preaches to the people he says david is dead This psalm doesn't speak of David, it speaks of the Messiah, the son of David, Jesus Christ. And Jesus fits this description perfectly. Verse 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like the psalmist before him, Jesus endured hardship for the pleasures of heaven. Never forget, whatever we're required to undergo in this life is nothing compared to the joys and the pleasures that we are going to experience in the world to come. Notice this. In your presence is fullness of joy, Lord. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Aren't you looking forward to those joys and to those pleasures? Boy, I am. Especially after the Falcons got robbed today. This world is a Such an unjust place. In his science fiction novel, Paralandra, C.S. Lewis, he tries to provide us a glimpse of the pleasures that are awaiting us in heaven. And in his novel, he has an earthling fly to an unfallen planet, a planet that has never been soiled by sin, a perfect world, And this earthling gets to the planet, and he becomes hungry. And he finds this yellow globe of fruit. He picks it up, and he holds it, and he accidentally punctures it. And the juice sort of oozes out of the fruit. And out of curiosity, he puts it to his lips. And Lewis writes this. He had to extract the smallest experimental sip. But the first taste put his caution to flight. It was so different from every other taste. It was like the discovery of a totally new genus of pleasure, something unheard of among men, out of all reckoning. For one drink of this on earth, wars would be fought and nations betrayed. I like that. Did you know that our human imagination cannot begin to comprehend the highs, the pleasures, The joys, the experiences that we're going to have in heaven. Do you know that? I mean, the joys and the pleasures will be more than we can handle. The heavenly highs. We'll need a glorified body. We'll need resurrection bodies to be able to handle the heavenly highs. We're going to be elated. We're going to be experiencing ecstasy all the time. And the beautiful thing about heaven, there are no hangovers. You don't get high and then get hung over the next day. You know, it's just a perpetual high. It's pleasures forevermore. Notice that. The party will never cease. Isn't that great? And David promises us at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17 is not a psalm of David. Notice, it's a prayer of David. It's interesting. David wrote Psalm 17 after being falsely accused. And rather than get bitter about it, he used it as a test. And in this psalm, he asked God to handle his case, to vindicate him before his accusers. Verse 1 tells us, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. That's what that Falcons coach was trying to get that referee to do today. Hear a just cause. And the guy just walked right off. God doesn't do that to us. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. You know, David was in the right here. He had been falsely accused, he'd been treated unfairly and unjustly. He makes it clear that his is a just cause. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart, you have visited me in the night, you have tried me. And have found nothing. God had been through David's heart. He would given David's life the white glove treatment. He had dusted David for sin prints. And and David had done nothing to deserve what had come upon him. In contrast, David says, I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. David had done his very best not to, to sin in his reaction. You remember Job also did nothing to bring on his calamity. You know, his sin did not cause his trial. But his response to his trial did cause him to sin. And David knows that this can happen. And that's why he guards his heart against sin. You know, some people believe that Psalm 17 is prophetic of Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was betrayed there by his disciples, he too... Uh, had been treated unjustly, and, and Jesus also had a just cause that he, that he appealed to God. Verse 4, concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. And how did David avoid the destroyer? Notice he triumphed over Satan by the words of God's lips, the words of your lips, he says. And, and isn't this how we defeat Satan? in our lives, through the Word of God. Remember Jesus, when He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, three times He countered Satan with the Word of God, with the words of His lips. In First John chapter 2, we're told this is how the young man overcomes Satan, through the Word of God. This is how you'll be victorious in your spiritual life when you know the Word of God and when you can respond to His accusations with the words of God's lips. He says, uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. The Hebrew meaning of these words sort of illuminate this verse. Steps means a straight ahead walk. Paths refers to a track or a rut or a groove. And footsteps are defined as a tapping, a rhythmic beating, sort of like a march cadence. Put it all together and David is asking God to help him live straight on. To just stay in the groove of God's will. Lord, help me keep the beat. Help me not slip from the cadence that you've set for my life. Help me to march in the rhythm of your will. That's a good prayer to pray. Lord, help me stay in step with you. You remember this was Jesus' desire in the Garden of Gethsemane. He He wanted to finish his mission. He wanted to stay in step with His Father until the very end. Jesus didn't want to slip out of the predetermined path that had been ordained for Him. The psalmist says, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them, keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep me, Lord, is the apple of your eye. You know what the apple of your eye is, don't you? It's your pupil. That's the apple of your eye, your pupil. And here's the message. The Lord comes to protect His people as surely and as quickly as your eyelid moves to protect your eyeball, your pupil. Now, How quickly do you blink when somebody throws something at you? How quickly, how surely do you blink? Well, your eyelid's pretty faithful to your pupil, isn't it? It, it? it acts real quickly. It quickly closes down and shuts it up in order to protect your eye. This is how God reacts to us when we're in danger. He, he's like that eyelid who protects. He keeps us as the apple of his eye. Did you know that it takes one-fiftieth of a second for your eyelid to blink? One-fiftieth of a second. Here's a scary thought. Let's say you blink 25 times a minute. Now, some people blink a little bit more. Some people blink a little bit less. But let's say you blink 25 times a minute. And you're driving for 10 hours at 55 miles an hour. You've got a trip you're taking. You're, going, you're driving for 10 hours at 55 miles per hour. At the same time, your eyelid is blinking 25 times a minute. Did you know that by the time you get done with your trip, you will have actually driven 33 miles with your eyes closed? (laughs) That's a scary thought, isn't it? The point is, is that your eyelids work hard. They're always hard at work. They blink a lot. Anytime anything gets close, the eyelid comes to its defense of the pupil. And this is how David hopes that God will treat him. Lord, has the apple of your eye. He also prays, hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from the deadly enemies who surround me. Like a mother hen that gathers up her chicks and covers her, those chicks with her wings, David is praying that God will surround him and hover over him and cover him from danger. Do you pray that prayer? I do. I pray it for my wife and my kids especially. He he speaks of the wicked in verse 10. They have closed up their fat hearts. (laughs) With their mouths they speak proudly. Those fat-hearted people. They have not surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword and with your hand from men. O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. In other words, the superficial pleasures that satisfy a child are what satisfies this wicked man. In other words, he's content with candy. He has no taste for healthy food, for strong food, for God's food. In contrast, David, notice what he hungers for. He hungers for God. Verse 15, he says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. You know, to David, a good job and a nice home and a couple of cars and a wife and two kids, 401k, that used to mean something. To David everything that sort of constitutes the American dream that wasn't enough for him. He won't be satisfied until he sees God's face. Until he knows God's reflection in God's glory. He wants to know God. He wants to share in God's glory. He wants to touch the hem of his garment. He wants to live his life in the presence of God. David won't be satisfied. Until he sees God's face in righteousness and until he awakes with his likeness. Notice David's threefold desire here. It's righteousness. He says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. It's vision. He wants to see God's face. And then notice it's likeness. I won't be satisfied until I awake in your likeness. It's righteousness. It's vision of God. And it's, it's likeness. In other words, he wants to be right with God. He wants to know God, and he wants to be like God. Does that sum up your life? To be right with God, to know God, to be like God. You know, the cross of Jesus makes us right with God. The Spirit of Jesus enables us to know God. And as we get to know Jesus through His Holy Spirit, we become like God. He rubs off on us. It's a process, isn't it? You know, the more we spend time with Him, the more we become like Him, little by little. Glory to glory. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. It sums it up. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord. Well, the preface to Psalm 18 reads, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he said. Now Psalm 18 is also 2 Samuel chapter 22. The two chapters are almost identical. It was written after Saul's death at the Battle of Gilboa. After two long decades, David's exile is now over. As with many of the Psalms, portions of Psalm 18, again, speak of Jesus. In one sense, it's a review of David's life. In another sense, it's a prediction of Jesus' life. Verse 1 tells us, I love verse 1, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Did you know the Hebrew word translated love there means hug? And like a little boy whose dad comes home and he walks in the door and he runs up and he jumps into his arms, and he gives him this great big bear hug. David is so excited over his deliverance that he just wants to bear hug God. Man, I love you, God. I want to bear hug you. You know, I just want to thank you for delivering me from Saul, from all my enemies. I have a new lease on life because of you. I know that when I get to heaven, the first thing I'll do is bow at Jesus' feet. But then I'm going to jump up and give him a big bear hug. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God had proven so faithful to David. He was all David needed. He says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Notice why we worship God. Because we feel like it. Because we're in such a good mood. Because we've been blessed and because God's made us happy. Oh, let's go down to the church and let's worship God. We're in the mood. Let's worship God. That's not why we worship God. No way. No way. Here we're told that we worship God because He's worthy to be worshipped. Whether we feel like it or not. Josh is up here with a migraine headache tonight. He's worshipping God. And you know why? Does he feel like it? Of course he doesn't. He feels like going home and going to bed. But why is he up here worshipping God tonight? Because God is worthy to be worshipped. And it would be a shame. It would be a shame in light of eternity and in light of heaven, if God's people didn't gather in this place tonight and worship our great God. Why? Because He is worthy to be worshipped and worthy to be praised. We worship God not because we feel like it or we're in the mood. Our praise should never be as fickle as anything as our mood. We worship God because He deserves it. Verse 4, the pangs of death surround me. And the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. David reviews his, his precious life. These may also have been some of the words that Jesus spoke on the cross. We're told, The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple. And my cry came before Him, even to His ears, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundation of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Apparently it wasn't just the Philistines that had defeated Saul. There was also supernatural conflict going on at the time. God was angry at Saul's rebellion. It was judgment time for Saul. It says, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. What an interesting picture of God here. He jumps up on the back of a cherub and rides him like a horse. God became enraged at Saul. Saul. And here, like a warhorse, God snorts smoke and spits fire, and he rides on a dark storm and on the back of a cherub, and the heavens are a bow aimed at Saul's demise. What vivid imagery! He made darkness his secret place, his canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. You know, sometimes we go through dark and lonely places. And what do we conclude when we do? We we usually assume that God has abandoned us. Oh, I'm I'm in a dark place. I'm in a lonely, going through a lonely time. You know, God has forsaken me. But, But don't forget verse 11 when you're in that dark place. Notice here, darkness is God's secret place. Darkness is God's hideout. He says His darkness, darkness is His canopy. It's where God dwells. When you're in that dark place, you may be very, very close to God. You may not realize it, but you may be, He may be right there with you. He says the darkness, the, the dark clouds, the canopy is, is his, his domain, His secret place. He says, from the brightness before Him, His thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered the foe. Lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. And you know, some folks read here Psalm 18 metaphorically, but I take it literally. I believe that the Battle of Gilboa involved divine intervention. that that while the Philistines and the Israelites fought on the mountaintop there, I believe that God sent from heaven hail and lightning and brimstone and an earthquake that even uncovered the streams of the earth. And God's intervention along with the Philistines defeated Israel and brought down the reign of Saul. Now, as I mentioned Uh, There is also a prophetic meaning here to Psalm 18. And some Bible teachers see in this psalm the storm and the darkness that occurred a thousand years later when Jesus hung upon the cross. You remember that day too, the earthquake and and darkness covered the sky for three hours. That God literally rocked the, the planet as Jesus hung upon the cross. In verse 17, David cries out, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. God had to help him. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. You know, for years, David had skirted across narrow desert ledges. There there was no room for error, error. There was no room for him to slip. He, he would fall to his demise. But now, he says, I'm in a broad place. I'm in a safe place. I can relax. I, you know, I'm not on edge anymore. You know, God brings us out of tight spots into broad and safe and peaceful places. Isn't that good? But you don't always have to live on pins and needles. God wants to bring you into a broad place where you can just relax and be at rest. He says the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands he has recompensed me for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God for all his judgments were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me I also I was also blameless before him and I kept myself from my iniquity therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands In his sight. Now, at first glance, David seems to be saying that he deserves God's blessing. You know, that his righteousness was conceived by the cleanness of his own hands. But understand, David isn't talking about his righteousness with God here. Before God, David has already said that there's nothing good within him, that before God, his righteousness is but filthy rags in the eyes of God. David is referring here to the way he has treated Saul, his righteousness to other people. And David has acted in a godly way. You remember David respected Saul. He didn't respect the person, but he respected the uniform. He respected Saul's position. Even when Saul didn't act respectable, David still respected him as God's authority in his life. David honored God's anointed one and trusted God to deal directly with Saul if need be. And in that, David was blameless. His hands were clean. And how did God treat him? God rewarded him for his faithfulness and for his trust in God. Even when he could have struck struck Saul, remember. You know, twice David had that opportunity when Saul was relieving himself in the cave. And then when David had snuck his way into the camp of Israel. Twice David had Saul within his grasp. He could have killed him himself, but David chose not to. He chose to trust God to fulfill his promises in his way. David's actions testified to great faith in his heart. Verse 25, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. And David had been both merciful and blameless towards Saul. He says, with the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. The chief example of which was King Saul. Verse 28, for you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Is the man who trusts in God. I love that. You know, for through God I can run against a troop. With my God I can leap over a wall. If it's a wall you need to go through tonight, in God's strength you can run with a troop. If there's a wall you need to go over tonight, in God's stre- strength you can get a lift. You can even get a leap. I have a sign in my office that I that I keep and I refer to it all the time. It says, God is greater than any problem that I have. With Him, I can run with a troop. I can leap over a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. His way is perfect and His word is proven. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets them on my high places. Deer climb up on the steep cliffs. And they travel along the narrow ledges and across the rocky terrains. And they live in these real hard to get places. This protects them from predators. You know, I've got a couple of deer that live in my yard. And I stumbled across them on very rare occasions. They're so elusive. They're amazing. They're hard to track down. If I went out to look for them, I couldn't find them. And likewise, God had made David hard to get. Saul couldn't track him. I mean, for 20 years, he searched for him, tried to, tried to track him down, but he couldn't. David, God made David nimble and sure-footed like a deer on high places. He had made him as elusive as a deer. Verse 34. He teaches my hands to make war, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Well, so much for God being a pacifist. Here, David says, God taught my hands to make war. You know, to fight when necessary. God bless David in both worship and war. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. And verse 36 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. He says, You enlarged my path under my feet, so my feet did not slip. In other words, God cut me some slack. Rather than expect perfection from me, His will for me allows a little leeway. He gives me some latitude. He, he doesn't fire me for a single mistake. He enlarges my path under me so that if I take a wrong step here or if I take a wrong step there, you know, hey, I, I'm still okay. I'm still within His will. He makes sure that my feet don't slip. In other words, God is more concerned about keeping me in His will than I am. Uh, back from my birthday the, the kids, they, they bought me, well, Kathy and the kids, uh, bought me one of these little tom-toms. You know what they are? These little GPS navigational devices and all. And, and I love this tom-tom. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily keep me from making wrong turns. But when I make a wrong turn, it's not really a wrong turn. Because immediately it recalibrates. And even if I make a wrong, I can't make a wrong turn. Because if I make a wrong turn, then it recalibrates. In the next turn, I get right back where I need to be. Rather than write me off because I'm not where I'm supposed to be, it's constantly finding where I am. And it's plotting and setting me back on course and giving me new directives and new coordinates so I can get right back into the flow of where I need to be going. And the psalmist is thanking God for being his tom-tom. This is what he means when he says, you've enlarged my path under me. You know, God is always recalibrating. He knows we're going to make mistakes. He knows we're going to do some stupid things. He knows we're going to step outside his will. But if we'll listen to him, he, he immediately recalibrates. So that if we'll just do the next thing he tells us to do, we'll get right back to where we needed to be in the first place. We can't lose if we just follow him. You enlarge my path under my feet so my feet did not slip. That's a good picture of God, isn't it? He loves us that much. Verse 37, I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord. But he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations, a people I have not known shall serve me. David will be a mighty king now. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. And sing praises to your name, great deliverance He gives to his king, and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. And that last phrase refers to Second Samuel 7 in the Davidic Covenant. You remember God had promised to David an heir, a descendant, who would reign over Israel and establish an eternal kingdom. In Matthew 1, Luke three, give us genealogies that identify that heir of David as none other than our Lord Jesus. There are two books in which God reveals Himself. The first book is the Bible. The second book is the heavens. The second book is plastered across the night sky. You can go outside on a clear night and you can read it. Even nature reveals God's nature. Both books are discussed here in Psalm 19. God reveals Himself in sky and in Scripture, in infinite worlds and in His infallible Word, in what was wrought and in what was written, in creation and in revelation. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. The word firmament means expanse, and it refers to the sky. He says, day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. The blazing daytime sun, the brilliant nighttime stars, both combine to reveal God's glory to man. He says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In other words, the stars speak a language that everyone understands. I mean, ever been out on a country night? Out in the country in the middle of the night, a clear night, away from the city lights, and just gazed up into the heavens on a, on a clear night. Ah, there's an ocean of stars up there, thousands of stars. And they all testify to the grandeur and to the glory of God. They twinkle in the sky. Their elegance declares God's artistry. Their number declares His majesty. Their brilliance declares His beauty. Certainly the stars speak of God's attributes. But they may have spoken even more specifically in time past. They may have once proclaimed God's salvation. The word zodiac means tent for the sun. The Hebrews had a word for it themselves. They called it the Maseroth. And the word occurs once in the Bible, Job 38 verse 32. The Zodiac is the path that the earth travels in its orbit around the sun. And there are 12 stations. I believe that these stations and the accompanying constellations to each of these stations were originally named by God as a way of revealing His plan of salvation to man. It's interesting, Genesis 1 verse 14 tells us that God created signs and seasons. He created the stars for signs and and seasons, what signs? Psalm 147 verse 4 tells us that God names each star. God has a name for each star. You now you look at the constellations and nothing about them resembles their title. I got to tell you, I can look at Orion until, I can look at Orion for months after months after months, I'll never see a hunter in that. I mean, how do you get a hunter out of that? How do you you know that's Orion? I mean, it's the constellation, but how did these names get associated with these these star formations? I believe that the names were given to these stars and these constellations by God. It's interesting that the constellations are universal. They're known all around the world. Where did they come from? I believe they were originally given to Adam and to mankind from God. It's interesting, the ancient zodiac began with Virgo, or the virgin, and it ended with Leo, the lion. What about the gospel? It begins with Jesus being born of a virgin, and it ends with him returning as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You, you ever seen the Sphinx in Egypt and ever wondered what that's about? It, it may have been... Uh, It may have gone back to this this whole idea, this whole notion of the Zodiac. This may have been the origin of the Sphinx. Notice it has the head of a woman, perhaps a virgin. It has the body of a lion. You know, the story begins with with the woman, with the virgin. The story ends with the lion, with Jesus coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's just interesting. The second sign of the Zodiac after the virgin, the second sign was Libra or the scales, the balancing scales. And it was symbolic of a price unpaid, or a debt of sin. Obviously, this was what necessitated Jesus coming to earth, a price unpaid, a debt of sin. Three decans, or accompanying constellation clusters, surround the scales in the the night sky. The southern cross is one constellation, the other is the victima, or the slain victim, and then the third is the northern crown. And what did they speak of? But obviously the cross, the cross of Jesus, which was God's answer to the scales, to the unbalanced scales. It's been said the stars are God's oldest testament, and I think that's true. You know, when God promised salvation to Abraham, He pointed to the heavens and He said, Count the stars. Count means to place in proper sequence. In Galatians 3 verse 8, Paul tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham. Perhaps He did it by pointing to the stars. Of course, let me add to my speculation tonight, and that's what it is. A little bit of a warning, probably a big warning. Before you really delve into this, you need to remember that not all the constellations are as easily deciphered, and there's a reason for that. It's because through the centuries, Satan has distorted the zodiac, and he has devised an alternative, an occultic interpretation of these constellations and their sequence. We call it today astrology, not astronomy, but astrology. And astrology or the worship of the stars or the consultation of the stars for guidance is an act that is forbidden in Scripture. God tells us that we can no longer consult the stars. We have to consult the Word because the stars have now been distorted. These meanings have been distorted and, and we, can, um, we can get off track by consulting the stars. So the Bible forbids that. So be very careful if you delve into this. But, but it is interesting how that in the original uh, layout, God may have been teaching us some very important lessons. Well, verse 4 tells us, "...in the heavens He has set a tabernacle for the Son, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber." and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. And then the sun moves across the horizon with the energy and the enthusiasm of a husband after his honeymoon. You know, a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now here's the contrast. The gospel in the stars has been blurred and has been distorted. But God's word is perfect. There's only so much of God that we can learn from nature. The ultimate revelation of God is His inerrant word. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, when you read God's Word, you, your eyes open. The light comes in. Everything becomes clearer and brighter. And the resolution gets sharper. Recently, we bought one of those high-def TVs, and it's amazing the difference. You mean, you mean there's not fog out there tonight? That it's a clear night? You know, you're, you're watching the television. You got that high-def going. And it's really sharp. You know, this is what... Um, the psalmist is saying, is that when I consult God's Word, it's like life becomes high def. I see things more clearly. I understand things. Things are brighter. You know, become a Christian and suddenly your life is in high definition. Here's a great little poem. Heaven above was deeper blue. Earth around was brighter green. Something lived in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen. He says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Here are six reasons why David desires God's Word. It's effect. It cleanses. It's reliability. It's true. And it's right. It's worth It's worth more than gold. It's sweetness. It's sweeter than the honey. It's warning. His word warns his saints, and it's reward. Even in a recession, it still pays great dividends. Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back from your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. You know, there are two kinds of sins. There are secret sins. These are those that we tend to cover up or conceal. And then there's presumptuous sins. These are those that we boast about. They become a source of pride for us. You know, some sins we know are sins, so we hide them. Other sins, we're oblivious to how evil they are, and we sort of wear them on our sleeves. And David asked God to cleanse him from both types of sin. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And here's the key to a holy life. If you can get control of your tongue or what you say, and if you can get control of your mind or what you think, You can be pleasing to God. It's all about the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Lord, may they both be pleasing to you. Now, Psalm 20 was sung by the priests as the army marched out into battle. Psalm 20 also needs to be sung by the church because we too are at war. We're in a spiritual battle. And this psalm has some lessons applicable to us. He says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God, of Jacob, defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Selah. Now understand, they're going out to battle, and nothing was as terrifying as going into battle with sin hanging over your head. I mean, in that situation, you're not assured of God's blessing. You're not assured of His protection. You're going out into battle with sin in your life. And this is why the priest here reminds them as they march into battle that God has remembered their sacrifices. He's recognized their offerings. They have His forgiveness. They can trust in Him and be assured of His protection. In fact, one of Satan's tricks with us is to tempt us to then lure us into battle, and then when He gets us there, to condemn us, so that that we start to doubt God's help, and doubt God's forgiveness, and doubt God's blessing on our life. And and if He can get us to, to doubt that, He can defeat us. That's why before we ever go into battle, we need to be reminded that we're forgiven in Christ Jesus. He says, May He grant you according to your heart's desire, and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You know, it's interesting. The law of Moses prohibited Israel's kings from accumulating horses. And in some eyes, this put Israel at a disadvantage. I mean, horses and chariots at the time were the cutting edge of weaponry. And so to go out into battle without horses and without chariots was like an army of muskets going against an army of machine guns. The difference, though, was that Israel had a secret weapon that God Himself made up for their lack of weaponry. And you know, the church today seems equally disadvantaged, doesn't it? You know, it looks like we have no chance at all. The devil controls the media, and the devil controls the lawmakers, and the devil controls the school boards. It seems like the devil controls everything. Our resources are meager. But like Israel of old, don't forget, we have a secret weapon. If we trust in the Lord, we'll win the battle. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Verse 8, They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. Psalm 21 complements the previous psalm. Psalm 20 is the prayer before Israel fights. Psalm 21 is the praise after Israel wins. In other words, Psalm 20 is Israel's preparation. Psalm 21 is Israel's celebration. Verse 1. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. God never fails the man who trusts in him. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Here the battle is won, and the king is rounding up his fleeing enemies. It's time for them to be judged and for them to be punished for their crimes. And here, here again is a picture of Jesus when he returns to the earth the second time. We're told their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men, for they intend evil against you. They devise a plot which they are not able to perform. And when will evil men learn that they can never plot against God and against God's people and win and prevail? He says, they devise a plot, but they won't be able to perform it. Therefore, you will make them turn their back You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Now, Psalm 22 is an amazing psalm. And Psalm 22 is a... um, It's the psalm that Jesus quoted while he was hanging from the cross. You remember when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is an amazing look at the cross. You know, in the Gospels, we we look at the cross uh, from from history looking backward. There are many passages in the Old Testament where we look at the cross from from history looking forward. But the amazing thing about Psalm 22 is that we look at the cross from on the cross. We see the cross from the Savior Himself's perspective. And that's what makes it very unique and very precious. And I think you'll find Psalm 22... To be holy ground indeed. But you're going to have to wait until next week to get to Psalm 22. So if the Lord doesn't come back this week, we'll have to tackle that. We'll tackle that next Sunday. If the Lord comes back this week, meet me under the tree of life. We'll grab some fruit off the tree. And, you know, we'll grab some leaves off the tree because we're told the leaves are for the healings of the nations. So we'll grab some leaves. We'll make us a real healing salad. And then we'll get some of that fruit that will send us into ecstasy. And we'll just sit there and eat that fruit and, and pig out on the salad and all. And we'll just have our Bible study. And guess what? I'll just sit back and take a back seat and I'll just let Jesus teach it. And. And after he's given us all a bear hug, then we'll all just sit down in the grass and we'll let Jesus teach us Psalm 22. Wouldn't that be great? Father, thank you. Bless us tonight as we go. Bless us this week. Not because we deserve it, Lord. We know we don't. We know there is no good thing within us that you haven't put there. Lord, we thank you, though, for your mercies and your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you're You set us on broad places, Lord, that you've you've broadened our path under us, Lord, that you love us, and that you're working in our lives. Continue your work this coming week. Help us, Lord, to be a witness for you in our home, in our job, in our neighborhood, wherever we go this week. May the love of Jesus flow from our hearts to others. We pray these things in your wonderful name.